Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Becky Preby. Becky is the VP of Innovation Design and GTM Lab 13 at MRM a leading global marketing agency with offices in 30 countries and strengths in strategy, data, science, technology, and creativity. For the past 15 years, Becky has worked at the messy, exciting, and emerging end of design technology, creating positive experiences for people. Amongst other things, Becky's designed an entertainment system for a McLaren supercar, interactive TV for Deutsche Telekom, pre-iPad era tablets for NVIDIA, and an industrial grade AR headset for Realware. Prior to joining MRM, while she was a partner and head of design at Adventuring Capital Group, Becky also designed an IP commercialization program that helped the firm to identify opportunities early and increase how quickly it could bring them to market. Becky was also the co-founder of Innovative Converged Devices, where some of the technology used in Snap AR and Microsoft's HoloLens was conceptualized. She is a named inventor on a technology patent, a watercolor artist, and a designer who refuses to be shoehorned into any one way of practicing her craft. And now, coming to me live from her apartment in Brooklyn, New York, USA, Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brandon. I'm really excited to be here. I think this is going to be an excellent conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. I have been as well. This is such a great way to finish my week. As I mentioned before we hit record, I'm actually calling you from the future. So it is Friday, the 6th of May for you, for me. And it's, <laughs> I think it's Thursday, the 5th of May for you. Yeah. So isn't time, aren't time zones wonderful? <laughs> they are. Hey, so I initially thought you might be calling me from your 30 acre hobby farm in New England. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, and and it's, it's curious for me to learn that you have an apartment in in Brooklyn as well, because I I was curious, you know, why why the I suppose it's the my projection here, but the serene kind of solitude of a thirty acre acre hobby farm in New England over the hustle and bustle of the Big Apple. Well, I, I have to say, actually, I don't think that one is too much better than the other. I think they suit different needs at different times. So. Sometimes when I'm in my hobby farm, I have a pretty significant commune with trees <laughs> and I spend a lot of time in nature, which I feel is very replenishing to me and kind of helps me revitalize myself a bit. When I'm in New York, there's a lot of inspiration around regarding things that humans do and produce and participate in. So there's a lot of art and music and <laughs> fantastic food. So I think I think they're both kind of, I don't know, it's like the best of both worlds, I guess. I've spent a lot of time in big cities over my lifetime, traveling quite a bit, and I've lived in a number of cities around the world. But yeah, I think I think they just each provide me different needs, I think, that support support ideation and creativity and just kind of thriving as a human, I would think. That's a good question. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you've got these two residences. Like, how do you decide where to be? Like, is this something that you you know you're quite structured and scheduled? You're like, this week I'm going to be in the city, and next week I'm going to be, you know, at uh, at my farm. Or is it more like a, a sort of I feel like now I need to sort of escape New York and and get and get some sort of time in nature so I can replenish myself. You know, it's really interesting that you ask that because it, there are definitely times where I feel like I need to escape New York and replenish myself in nature. And I do go to Maine, which is where my farm is, to, to do that. It's quite quite a drive. It's about a five-hour drive. But I, I also think that I've recently discovered, I've made a point of discovering places in New York that do that for me. So I've actually kind of found some very interesting kind of nature in the wild places in New York City that I don't think a lot of people think of when they think of New York. But I was actually just at one yesterday and I went there and with my dogs and kind of wandered around and I saw there, there was quite a bit of nature there. There was a beautiful crane that I watched for some time. But yeah, I mean, a bird as opposed as opposed to the, uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the things that build buildings. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. there's a few of those in yeah. New York too. Yeah, like a like a <laughs> like a bird crane. Yeah, like a live one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, there's things that I get from both. A lot of time, I'm a big like explorer, kind of discoverer type. I like to try stuff, and I've always been fascinated with um, sustainable living and tiny tiny living. And so I kind of try to live that way on my farm in Maine. And I do the, I do a bit in New York City as well, like try to min- live in a fairly minimal way. But I mean, I think some people, you know, first world problems would think that's, you know, you have <laughs> access to lots of things. So it's not really what's happening. But. but it's the relativity here that's interesting for me, because I was going to ask you about the tiny home, because there's yeah. this stereotype about America and having traveled there several times myself, seen this firsthand, you know, like the coffees are bigger, the the popcorns are bigger, the houses are bigger, you know, everything is like the trucks are bigger, everything's bigger. So why not bigger? Why is tiny better than bigger in this case for you? You know, I think it's just a conscious choice of all of us as humans need to think smaller, you know, in order for to think bigger about the planet. I mean, we're we're facing some pretty significant things happening, and I'm a big believer that everyone can make impact in small ways. And you know, small a, a lot of humans doing small things add up to big things. So that's why I look at it. And also, you know, it forces you to think in a necessity mindset. So the famous quote, "Necessity is the mother of invention." It forces me to think in a necessity mindset and then to do things with materials or things that are available to me that I didn't buy or, you know, somehow were made for me and to use them in a way to make them into what I need them to be. So I do that a lot in Maine. I like look for objects in the forest that I can make things out of or try to find ways that I can leverage my water or, you know, my there's different things that are happening on my property to exist more kind of in harmony with the world, I guess. 
just segueing briefly into your art, and we touched on that when we first started speaking, how you were inspired by the forest. Mm. Uh, let me know if I'm putting words in, in your in your mouth here. But I had a look at your art website and the pieces that you have on display there are very, uh, very clearly inspired by the forest itself. You know, what is it about, I mean, not necessarily nature itself, but in particular, for you with the forest and the trees because they come through quite strongly in, in your latest art like what is it about that space for you wow that's a really good question you know i don't even know if i can answer that in words i think that i feel something like when i'm amongst a lot of trees i feel something very good and Sometimes I actually, you're going to laugh at me. Sometimes I actually pet them <laughs> when I'm on my property. Like, <laughs> like I actually make a point of like just rubbing my hand down the tree to just kind of feel it. And I don't know what it is. I, I've told a colleague that I worked with, work with that I think that I come up with great ideas when I'm in the midst of trees and could possibly be the fact that there's just a lot of oxygen, you know? I mean, <laughs> trees are actually emitting oxygen, right? So who knows? Like maybe that's stimulating some sort of chemical reaction or, you know, I think, I don't know. It just makes me, it takes me to a good place. And the other thing that's interesting about it too is when I'm out in those areas, I feel, I imagine myself like explorers would feel. So like if you came to a new land, that you didn't know before. I like to look at it in that way. And then I feel like inspired because I'm seeing things as if, oh, I just discovered this. I'm the only person who's ever been here. Or, you know, it makes me feel like that. So I think that's it. That's probably. There's a romantic notion there. You know, the world has become so connected by technology. We have satellites, you know, thousands of them around the globe at the moment. You can literally look into every nook and cranny from space. It sometimes does feel like there's nothing left to be discovered in our natural environment. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of like how you're almost, I mean, you might actually be correct though. Someone, some other human may not have seen that particular tree that you're, you're you're looking at in that you know in that forest but I like the way that you're almost inventing a sense of discovery there and I think that I can see the definite appeal of feeling replenished by it's almost like getting in touch with your your child you know you're in a child again and I don't want to get I'm not a psychologist right so I can't delve too deep into this but having a child myself now who's of an early age you definitely there's that cliche of you you see the world through your child's eyes and you can definitely come to appreciate that there's still so much wonder and discovery for smaller humans and we kind of lose that as we as yeah. we get older and grow into our cities you know i actually really love kids at you know i mean i have a child my <laughs> a daughter myself but i love that about them, that they ask questions that are like obvious, but not obvious, you know, or they say things that you're like, what? And then you think, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. I think that's, it's a really, we do lose that a bit because we start to, our brains start to uh, accept things for granted. I think actually David Dylan Thomas on here, on your podcast said something about, we make something like 1 trillion decisions a day. And in order to do so, we have to develop ways to do it quickly by making, like putting things into categories, basically is what's happening. And 
in order to do that, what we're also doing, though, is accepting things as a certain, like giving them a characteristic or a set of characteristics, characteristics, which then prevents us from looking at them in a new way. So that's interesting. Yeah, that must be what's happening with kids. You know, their neurons are, you know, formulating and connecting. And so they have to. You can literally almost hear it happening, don't you? <laughs> that's quite that's You definitely quite something. see it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I um, was curious about your career as well, you know, like just following on the sort of thread of, I suppose, connecting a few dots and, you know, neurons forming, you know, you've got one of the more interesting, if not most interesting creative technology careers that I've seen. And, you know, I mentioned some of the things in your introduction that you've designed, you know, there's definitely a strong theme there of emerging technology. And I was, you know, I was quite captivated by this. I was wondering what was it that, drew you so strongly to the emerging edges of design? I think that I am just wired in a way that requires me to constantly be figuring things out. And I think that my brain just kind of latches on to things that aren't. And then I have to, like I have, it becomes like something that just drives me. And I think that's, what has kind of driven my career of, oh, that's interesting. How does that work? How can it work for people, right? What What's its impact? And then, you know, just forcing myself to figure it out. I had somebody tell me once that they think that I always needed something to worry about because apparently I'm a worrier. <laughs> but what, I think those things go hand in that. hand. Oh, I don't remember the exact circumstances. But maybe because I was behaving in that way, like of, okay, now Mm. I'm, now I'm addressing this problem, right? And I was, you know, probably really focused on it. And that's what kind of happens to me. I like get something in my head of like, I need to know, you know, how, how that works, right? So yeah, probably worry and curiosity are very (laughs) kind of tied together, I guess. Yeah, listening to you talk about your work and I've listened to some other uh, talks and podcasts that you've been on as well. You are so humbly blase about it all. And <laughs> I hope, I hope you realize that you've got an incredible portfolio of design work. I've had a lot of really good opportunities. I, I don't know, you know, that that's an interesting thing to say because I, I think maybe many designers are like this, but it feels like you're always striving to do the perfect work. And it's completely unattainable. So it feels like sometimes that maybe the work that you did was amazing or the product that you worked on was amazing, but you're always thinking that could have been better, right? Like I could have done better there. But I thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, I, I have truly stumbled on a lot of really interesting things. I mean, some of them just by happenstance of where I was at the time. You know, something was happening societally or technologically or and it just kind of unfolded that way. So a lot of it, I think, is just due to luck. (laughs) This notion of perfection and the constant pursuit of it is something that I know is almost a universal human experience, uh, at least for people across fields i'm not saying that every human experiences this pull to perfection but people across many different fields are 
haunted and motivated by this pursuit. What is it for you, though, when it comes to the design work that you've done, when you think back on it, or maybe even what you're trying to achieve in the, in the sort of present moment at MRM, what is it that would make whatever it is you've done or are doing perfect? What is lacking? What is the thing that's missing? You know, I think that's actually the kind of dichotomy of it, because it's almost like when you were talking about being in the, the, with trees and being a discoverer, and perhaps you were the only person that has ever been there. You are the only person that's ever been there at that moment of what, where the trees are at, right? So you're there, the trees are there, those two moments will never happen again, right? In design, it's a similar thing, right? Like, you'll never achieve perfection because the circumstances will always change. The variables will always change, right? Even, you know, people that we look up to, like personally, me, like, you know, there's design people that I think are just amazing. And I would probably label some of their work as perfect. Um, or products like Apple is one that, you know, is commonly referred to as just like the bar of which to attain. But even there, there's always some little trade-off or, you know, something that's could be a little bit better, you know? So yeah. have you used the keyboard on the 2017 MacBook Pro? Terrible. <laughs> I'm glad they replaced it. <laughs> well, one of the things that drives me crazy is I think that Apple's Bluetooth stack is annoying. Like, I literally... <laughs> feel like somebody like they don't they don't something has happened there like why is that one area just not getting as much attention as everything else but yeah i i feel that way about their bluetooth <laughs> but it's working well now so is, yeah it's all good oh good oh good i'm yeah. pleased yeah, yeah it seems to be getting incrementally better yeah. where does that voice come from you know that that perfectionist tendency you know if you think back about even maybe your time before you considered yourself a designer. And I don't know, maybe you've always considered yourself a designer, but is there a, an origin or a memory that comes to mind where that voice, you were first conscious of that voice being there? Of seeking perfection, you mean? I think it's always been there. I think, I mean, now that you mention it, I mean, I can, I could literally talk, I could literally, you know, look back on my childhood and acknowledge that I've been like this forever and probably annoyed a lot of people because of it. <laughs> it could be too. I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but I, I don't, I have never been officially diagnosed, but I think that in some ways I'm probably neurodiverse or divergent or whatever you want to put that box in. And I think maybe some of it's that, you know, I don't know. I think, I think there's there's just like the way we're wired, people are wired differently. And the way I'm wired is to look for things that need to be fixed, <laughs> you know, even if it's in my own self. So, or my, or things I produce, like it's, it's interesting too. like designers, I think have this tendency to produce something. And then let's say they go to a present it or share it with somebody. Almost every designer will point out the flaw in the thing that they produced. Right. <clears throat> it's just a thing that we do. We're like, oh, they're like, they, the person could be, this is amazing. It's beautiful. I love it. And you're like, oh, yeah, but there's this one thing right there that yeah. I, I didn't yeah, do yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. That, and then kind of, I think in the back of the, your mind, you're kind of kicking yourself thinking, why did I have to say that? You know, <laughs> like what compelled me to do that? 
though. Yeah. For me, I've sometimes wondered whether it's a, it's actually coming from a place of insecurity, like a place of yeah. discomfort with praise. Like I've never really been comfortable when people have said good things about my work because I'm like you in this respect that I, I always know where the hole is. Yeah. And I do it with the podcast as well. Like I listen to each episode when I'm reviewing the edit and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have started that way. That was a bit awkward. Or there's just this sort of nagging uh, voice in my head that doesn't want to accept that it's actually pretty good, you know? I wonder, I think actors must feel that way as well, you know? Mm. I think that some of some actors just can't watch themselves because, you know, mm. it's too hard. <laughs> to sit there and self-critique, you know, like, oh, that causes too much stress. And you're right, it probably is insecurity. And I think that, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think that creative people have a tendency toward insecurity. I think that, I'm sure other people do as well, but it seems like in the creative world, we tend to feel that way quite a bit. Like it kind of drives, you're probably right. It probably does drive a lot of seeking of perfection, I, w I would imagine. Or are we just smart enough to realize that we've got some rough edges to round out? <laughs> it's hard to yeah. tell sometimes. But I was, I was curious, like if you think about yourself in a social situation, you know, I don't know if you want to go back as far as um, high school or um, even at college, if you went to college, um, which I believe you did, would you say that you were someone who fit in with the group that was comfortable at the center of the room or not? Or are you someone who is more comfortable around the edges, is more comfortable having that one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone else that might be hanging out around the edges? Like, How do you think about your own fitting into, I suppose, society and the social groups that you're part of? That is a very, very interesting question because I've actually analyzed myself from that view, like of that question. And I don't think that I fit into either. I don't think that I am always, okay, I need to stay on the outside or I'm always, I need to be in the middle of what's going on. I feel like I kind of go back and forth and I have definitely had trouble in my life in many instances fitting in or to, to kind of refer back to things Benny was saying, like understanding the rules of the this group or of what what's, you know, how things work or, and then, but also being super self-conscious and insecure about not fitting in, you know? So that, you know, generating anxiety in myself of, you know, kind of wanting to, but kind of, you know, it, it, this is so interesting because this is also probably goes back to the main hobby farm remote <laughs> around nobody to New York City, <laughs> right? Like, I, it's like, mm. they're two different things. Although my apartment in New York City is quite insulated from the city. When I leave my apartment, it's sometimes a bit of a shock because I'm like, whoa, I'm in a massive city, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really interesting. But I don't, I don't honestly think I fit into one, one category or, or personality type, I guess you would call it. Yeah. And I suppose 
what motivated me to ask you that question was our offline conversation about this was your commentary on you know listening to that episode with Benny I was also reflecting where this all started actually on Brave UX was a conversation with Trip O'Dell who is mm. neurodiverse as well and Trip actually introduced me to Benny which is how Benny became on the podcast and Trip has this and it's it's not a notion specific to Trip but this sort of t-shaped comb uh, notion when he's building his teams and this, you know, feeling, I suppose, that people who are neurodiverse or divergent have often where they, they're not sure if they fit in, in certain circumstances or they're not quite getting certain cues. But we were also speaking about, you and I, about this tension between categorizing things and thinking about things in spectrums. <laughs> and what you've described about your own behavior and how you feel like sometimes you're happy being that center of attention and other times you're more comfortable on on the outside and not really sure if you fit into either it just sort of seems to me like it's a situational thing as mm -hmm. this is sort of more reflective of I suppose the the human experience than you know these labels that we like to assign to ourselves which I think Lou Rosenfeld kind of describes them as prisons you know yeah. we build these little these moment prisons, prisms, he was talking about prisons, sorry, not prisms, different things. He was talking about <laughs> probably both. Like the labels that we used to have in design, right? Yeah, probably, yeah. right? You know, yeah. like getting hung up on, am I an interaction designer or am I a UX designer? Oh my gosh, that's, that's one of the things that drives me crazy about design is those categories mm. of determining what you are. Sorry, I interrupted you, please. No, not at all. But this, that's 100% what it is, right? You know, just we we seem to be drawn to tightly define ourselves and I suppose the question is is how how well does that serve us as people and also how well does it serve us as a profession as a field as a discipline yeah that's really interesting you know I actually had people tell me that I was neurodivergent and I never thought of myself as that and when they said it then I researched it Right. And then I started listening to podcasts or interviews or things by psychologists or like your podcast with Benny or just listening to them and hearing them describe their experience and how they feel about the world and what their perception is of the world and how they fit in. And I was like, this is really coming into focus for me. <laughs> right. And I was seeing that I yes, that sounds like me. That sounds like how I behave. But then. I thought about this too, and I think about it, I know that evolutionary wise, we were designed to make categorical decisions, right? And I think David Dylan Thomas talked about this too, but it's also in like uh, Noah Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens. And it talks about how, you know, when you're trucking across the savannah and you hear a noise and you look and you have to make a quick decision. Is that a lion or is it a bird? Right. And you have to do something as a result. Right. So your, our brains were naturally like, Oh, that's a lion. I should run. Right. Or I should be very quiet or, you know what I mean? So I think that we're designed to do that. But one of the things about this, this term neurodivergent is then I thought, what, what, how do you, aren't we all, isn't neuro, isn't the literal definition of neurodivergent or neurodiverse just anybody? Because it's like, if we're all on a spectrum of what, you know, sliders, like we were talking about in a number of ways, like 
introvert, extrovert, or how you behave in this way, are you on this end or that end? You know, none of us really fit into a, these are the criteria of this group or that group. We're all sliding around. So while I feel actually comfortable with hearing that term, and it, and I feel like it's probably the one of the first times in my life, other than being creative, that I felt like that label fit me, you know, like, oh, I feel comfortable with acknowledging myself as that. I think that it scares me a little bit because then it's a it's a box that people can put you in and say, okay, you're neurodivergent, so now we should do this, which is what our brains are designed to do. So, and I've mentioned it to people a few times that I that I feel like I am, but I and I've seen varying reactions like Benny was talking about. I don't think I listened to Trips podcast, but I've seen varying reactions to it, and it's because that's what's happening. They hear the word and then now they're making an assessment. So this means I need to behave this way around you, or I need to do these things for you. And I think a lot of it is more about you need the other person to be open to you might behave differently than they expect. You know, that's my assessment of the situation. I'll probably change it tomorrow. <laughs> As is your right to do. You know, it's listening to that description there of how you, how you were thinking about that and I couldn't help but sort of parlay that back to design and how there's the in-group and there's the out-group. And it's in any area of humanity where we seek to define ourselves as one thing over another. And I think there's a, there's a danger in any realm where we do that, where we, we like to other, you know, oh, then maybe not enough this or not enough that mm -hmm. and we actually take something that is in essence a, a a wonderful spectrum that is fully representative yeah. and then we start to categorize it yeah and put walls up now i don't know where this is going um but that's sort of thinking about the challenges that design has at the moment well one of the challenges is also that sort of we like to be part of the in group and put our wall up and you know the gatekeeper sort of thing comes to mind and you know who's good enough to be in this um, particular um, label and who's not and i think there's some maybe some things to contemplate there as to how well that actually helps us. I just want to segue into something else, which is I know that Sapiens was one of your favorite books as at least as far back as uh, 2019, which is what, three years ago now. But another one uh, was um, Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. You know, we were speaking about Apple and clearly Don Norman had a role there early on. Now he said in that book, it's the duty of machines and those who designed them to understand people. It's not our duty to understand the arbitrary, meaningless dictates of machines. So if you take a 30,000 foot view of technology today and where it stands, and you contrast that with the technology that you were working on as a designer, let's say 10 years ago, are we getting better or worse at our duty? That's a really good question. I might shift that a little bit because I have a friend. He's actually in a, uh, has a degree in astronomy and mm -hmm. a PhD in astronomy, but he does all sorts of technological things. And I've shared this quote with him at one point years back. And he came back to me and said, is it though? Shouldn't we really try to understand machines? What about the machines? And I thought, that's interesting <laughs> because... 
when you think about where we're headed with technology, we're creating machines that are more and more human-like, right? We're getting closer and closer to developing things that are in our own image, you know? And at one, what point are we supposed to shift and start giving them the same empathetic analysis and the same consideration as we would a human, right? Which is fascinating to think about. And I, for a long time, was a very big, you know, believer in this quote by Don Norman. And I thought, yeah, I mean, this human-centered design, right? We, we, they should, like, machines should be designing to adapt to, to our needs, right? And I don't necessarily think that we need to adapt to machines, but maybe at some point, like, let's say machines are doing things that make the world more sustainable, right? Should we adapt to that? Possibly. I mean, if we want to continue to have a wonderful planet that we exist on. But yeah, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting thought, something to think about. I would want to ask Don Norman what he thinks now. I wonder if he's changed. Yeah, maybe you should. I'll get him on the show. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Maybe Uh, he thinks differently now. Yeah. That's true. I'm a, it's something that I've actually asked a few guests. I think I asked Dr. Susan Weinshank a couple of weeks ago. That episode's not yet out, but it will be out before this one is, so people can have a listen. I asked her if there were any things that back in the sort of mid-80s, early 90s, when she was finishing her PhD and also practicing in the early sort of early edges of UX uh, usability and human factors, if there were any positions that she had taken that she had since moved on from or come to revisit. Um, and she mentioned a couple of things, actually, you know, things that she'd accepted as fact, but then went back again to check the academic literature and that actually found that, you know, it had become more of a um, a superstition necessarily or a fact that was applied outside of context and some things had taken their own path. But mm-hmm. I was I was also thinking when you were describing that relationship between humans and machines, and I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan, and this uh... has probably come up on the podcast Star Trek before. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know you've got a Blade Runner poster in your background, which I people do, watching the yeah. video might be able to see. <laughs> yeah. So you're obviously a bit of a sci-fi fan too. But this relationship between Jean-Luc Picard and the next generation and data, mm. um, this chronicles, I think, quite beautifully over, I think it's 150-ish episodes, that relationship between the humans and then the machine that was made in our image and some of the deeply ethical but also very human stories that are told through that it's actually it's quite beautiful i won't wax lyrical about it that for for too much longer but it's really if you're into sci-fi and you haven't watched next generation or you haven't seen it in a while maybe go back and watch it i i'm a big fan of i actually wasn't a star trek fan i do like science fiction but i wasn't really a star trek fan until discovery and picard i Picard is amazing and it also touches on a lot of that because the, you know, continuation of the line of data basically. But yeah, I mean, yeah, there there are some really fascinating relationship questions that come into, you know, effect there. One of the things too is interesting that we're talking about this because I was talking with a colleague of mine the other day about why do we call user experience, user experience. Why don't we call it human experience? It's always bothered me, right? That 
we put user instead of human. So, but if you're, if you were to group humans and machines, maybe that those are users, right? I mean, and. <laughs> or ahead like, of its time. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. And, or if you could group other things in there, like maybe the earth is a user, you know, if we're starting to design things like less human centric, more, you know, the system centric of humans are part of an overall system and we need to think about it that way. Not that we're just the center of the system, but that we exist within something. That's an interesting thing to think about. And that's actually something that you have done professionally for a number of organizations, which is bring design in to the organization. And I know that you've taken a systems mindset at least when you've been doing that. And I'll just quote you now, you've said, creating an experience with a system mindset requires a big picture view in order to generate optimal results. So why is that big picture view necessary? How, you know, how, is that, how does that help you to generate what you've coined there, optimal results? And what are optimal results? You know, how does this all fit together? Well, I think optimal results can be, they're varying based on what you want the system to do, but everything's a system. And in order to design well, I think you have to look at things systematically and understand what's happening. It's interesting because I believe that organizations are systems. They connect to other systems, which are external to the organization, right? Which is where the customer and the consumer and the user come in, right? I think that those systems have to be designed to give optimal results on both sides. So one of the things like, oh, the recent news of the people, the employees at Apple talking about how remote work or how the systems within Apple are affecting them working. The systems within Apple are affecting what Apple produces as a product, right? So if that system isn't working, you can't really expect output to be optimal unless you're, you know, really probably putting in a lot of exertion and effort around making that happen. And I think in order to do that, you have to pull out, like you have to look at things like almost like you're observing a play or just looking down at, at the participants with yourself possibly included and just seeing like what's happening. And so much of our time is spent inside a system that we don't, we have a very difficult time like zooming out of it. We get inside the system and we're reacting to elements within it, which may be good or bad, probably both or neither. But then we have to, if we want to optimize it to get, okay, we want this specific outcome or we want, you know, make money. <laughs> if we want to make money or we want to make the earth better or something like that, we have to look at what's happening, you know, from a zoomed out view because otherwise we won't see the full realities of what's happening and we'll probably do something that then shifts the system without knowing exactly what's going to happen. Is this one of the reasons why design talks a lot about invalidating assumptions and evaluating ideas and designs with, I'm going to use that word, users? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, mm. definitely. It's that maxim, right? Yeah, you yeah. are not your user. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I mean, I think mm. that, you know, obviously getting feedback, you you know, if you're designing something in, in, in a box without information coming in, right, and information coming in from the right people, 
It's kind of also something David was saying about that assumptions audit. Yes, I, I saw really, your comment actually. I, really, I have to come back to you on it. Yeah. I really want to know more about that because I, I kept rewinding the podcast to hear it while I was driving. I kept hitting the like back 15 seconds to hear like the <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> but when I was listening to it, I was thinking, you know, how many times do we design things without inputs or considering, you know, the, the, the different types of people that might use it or from an inclusive standpoint, specific groups that may be affected by it. You know, that we don't think about them as as particular inputs into it. Yeah, and it's a purposeful approach, that framework that David was speaking about. And I will I will reply to your comment on LinkedIn, but I will oh, yeah, also true. I will put in the show notes um, the link in the resource. I might message David actually and see if he can send that through to me. And I was thinking about this idea of design as a system, and I know you've spoken about, you know, that businesses and organizations are systems also and there are subsystems within systems you know everything is clearly it's interconnected and i hmm. i was interested in your experience of when you're brought uh, this is my own sort of summation of what i've learned about you from the outside looking in so if if, you, if, if i'm missing a bit of context here please let me know but when you've been brought in to bring design into an organization you know to effectively create this design a design system and obviously all the broader things that go around that is design what you're trying to achieve is it seen and treated by the rest of the organization as a savior you know the sort of knight right riding in on this white horse or is it sort of more seen as oh. a bit of a virus or is it just treated with, in, <laughs> with indifference you know like what is the system yeah. response like how does this play out that's so that's so interesting i think it varies about it varies based on who the person you're talking about is and where the where the organization is at as an organization or like in a life cycle of their product who the players are like most of the organizations i have come into are very engineering heavy and a lot of that because i've been involved in very emergent technologies has been working with you know engineers primarily and some of them not that excited about design, <laughs> you know, but one of the things I learned, I learned a lot from it. One, I developed a less rigid approach to design than I think a lot of designers have. I think that sometimes I look at it a little bit differently than what designers desire to, to have it be. And I've also, you know, realized that I mean, if you look up the definition of design and you look up the definite definition of engineering, they're almost exactly the same thing. Like, I mean, there's might be a very, very, very subtle difference, but they're almost exactly the same thing. But it's so fascinating to me that over the history of design and engineering, there's been like this tension of are you a designer? Are you an engineer? And if you are, where do you fit into the process of the product design, right? And some of my work at bringing design into organizations has been very painful because people just do not feel it's needed. I've had people flat out say to me, we don't need design, <laughs> right? Really? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. What is it, um, when they say that, so thinking about that when that was last said to you, what do you think they're actually saying? 
I think there, in the instance that it was happening, it was fear of losing control over the product. Mm. I think that's what it was. And I think it's interesting because I love design and I love how designers design and I love how we figure things out. I also love how engineers create things. I love how they're, it's kind of magical in a way, like they just make things work. You know what I mean? Like, they're just like, I'm just going to make that work. Right. And the designer's like, no, 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 no. We got to figure it out. And what's the best way to make it work? Then you make it work. Right. But the engineer's just saying, no, I'm just going to make it work. You know? And then, but if there's a way that designers can work, like, you know, if you can find a happy way to work together where it's, the designer is providing the value that design thinking provides and the engineer is providing the value that engineering magic provides, you know, those things are so powerful together. I think we get caught up a lot in the when and how, which, you know, I think all humanity is caught up in that pretty much all the time. But yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. Becky, listening to you describe that tension between design and engineering and also the strengths that each bring, particularly in the creation of modern product. I couldn't help but think of some historical examples of people in particular, people like Thomas Jefferson or Leonardo da Vinci, who they seem to be masters of more than one discipline. It's almost as if the the really interesting advances or the really interesting work of the day was happening when people were able to draw from multiple different perspectives and integrate those into something. And they weren't so caught up with defining themselves to be one or the other. And I'll just pick up on something that I've also heard you say, which is, and I'll quote you again now, a lot of times in companies, there's an isolation between design and engineering, or there's design isn't really seen as, as important as engineering, especially in engineering-led companies. So it's really important that you give equal value to engineering and design so you get the best result. And so I really I agree with that statement. I was like, yes, that's 100% what needs to happen. But my question is, what does giving equal value to those two disciplines actually look like? Well, I think it it varies depending on the organization. I think that we've done a lot around processes to make a path from design to engineering. I think that some organizations, I've witnessed some that are more dominant on one side or the other. So you get, you see things like product studios, which are generally more design heavy. You see things like incubators or I'm not sure thinking of the term. I generally like companies that have, that are building a specific product. There's generally engineering and design is even part of engineering as a business unit, right? So design falls under that. I think it varies. I think that where I, this is probably also what has driven me toward innovation and emergent technologies, because what tends to happen in those groups is they're just kind of all lumped in together, mm, right? Like it's more messy. you got, yeah. yeah, you've got designers and engineers and they're all kind of just making stuff, right? Like mm. <laughs> they're just 
we're coming up with ideas and then we're going to try it out. Right. And I think that I'm a little bit of both. You know, I actually describe myself when most people ask me what I do that I'm like maybe 70, 80% designer and the rest engineer. I don't ever want to go greater than that because I think I would be insulting engineers if I did. (laughs) They'd be like, well, I don't know about that. But, um, (laughs) but I think that I, I, maybe that's why I feel comfortable in those places. But I've also, when I went to school, you know, designers are taught that there is a way that you do this, right? This is the way, right? (laughs) And it's all like, this is what you do first. You, you, you sketch out some thumbnails, you do some diagrammatic flows, you, you know, it's like a whole, you do some wireframes, you do some visual concepts, you know, like it's like a mapped out kind of how it works. And that's when the engineers come in, they're like, let's make something, right? And, but there are engineers that are also that same way. They're like, no, 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 no. First, we drop the system, right? We map out the whole system and how the system's going to work. Then we start building things, right? Because if you don't figure out the system first, you're going to build something that doesn't fit into the system. And so it's like, it's kind of like those levels and sliders again, you know, there's varying parts. But I think back to that, that might be what drove part of my career is just that attraction to the group where they're just the figure it out people. We're very hardwired to notice difference, right? Like that's just p- part of oh yeah of of mm-hmm. our ability to perceive the world around us. It's important for us to identify things that are different, and there is this tension between these innovation studios and you know the the rest of the business. Often that comes to light, but I think it's a recognition that the people that make the current business model successful are not necessarily the same people that are going to create the future business model to sustain that success over the long term. And people have to be comfortable recognizing where their strengths are best applied. And this also applies within design. Like you've obviously been someone who's quite comfortable at the margin you know, on those, on the, yeah. on the, not the messy middle, you know, you're out, you're out on the frontier, pushing the boundaries, trying to see where things might go. But there are also designers that are, you know, they're not the creators of the design system, but they're the people that will implement it incredibly well and know their craft. Mm-hmm. And there's no one that's better than the other. I think you just have to know which one you mm-hmm. are and, and go in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting. I took um, this position, the role I'm in now, because I never work in a creative, like, truly like these are creatives, you know? Mm. So, and I'm in awe of the people and the way they think many days, like, and what they produce, you know, it's very interesting. I feel a level of comfort there because they communicate in the same way I do. So in a lot of times when I've integrated design into engineering heavy environments, there's been difficulty because I communicate in a different way than they communicate. And it's caused, you know, friction between reaching, you know, attaining whatever we're trying to attain. Do you run to the fire or do you run away from it when there's that friction? (laughs) I think I told you I'm a kerfufflist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you did. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a professional, actually. (laughs) (laughs) A professional Um, kerfufflist, yeah. (laughs) I'm a professional kerfufflist. I should have like some sort of credentials, actually. (laughs) 
I, it varies. I think that some things that happened to me um, early on in my life made me avoid conflict, that it causes a lot of, or maybe, and maybe there's something about, I'm an extremely sensitive person, like there, maybe there's something about neurodivergence or something like that that's causing it, but it causes me a lot of anxiety and stress to have conflict. It gets better in environments where conflict is accepted, right? And it's just kind of part of the how it works. It, that is a little bit relieving to me. But generally speaking, it causes me to, I try to avoid, I have in the past tried to avoid it because it causes my brain, it makes my brain feel like it's not running at optimal capacity or, or capability. Like there's, there's something that's, you know, like interference, you know, like if you're sending a signal and interference is happening, that's what it feels like. Do you ruminate on on that conflict? Um, I yes, and I do it in a way that's very, I think, in an analysis, right? Like, oh, what's happening there? Why did this? Why did this person say this? Why did this person say that? And like, what was the meaning of that? Or you know, and I think I do that, you know, as I get older, getting better at just accepting that that happens and moving on from it, and thinking okay, there was some conflict. Let's put it aside and we'll go back to where we were. <laughs> right? I read your most recent blog post, which I, I think was actually a couple of years old now, back in 2020. And it might've been just after the pandemic took hold. And you were talking about this idea of making space and the importance mm -hmm. of making space. And I couldn't help but think, particularly when we've been talking about conflict about that's interesting the need to make space so yeah i was i was wondering you know in terms of what you'd written then and then subsequently the last couple of years that have been you know, how have you applied this notion what is this notion of making space and how have you applied that particularly in the commercial design environment where you know you often are bumping up against people with different perspectives and different agendas and, you know, people that don't always agree with how wonderful our uh, design work is and what we're trying to do. You know, what's so fascinating is now that you say that um, some of what I just said, I'm looking back at it thinking that's very interesting that I reacted that way because I actually believe 100% that some sort of conflict has to happen for change, right? It can be an inner conflict. It can be a, you know, with another person. It can be with groups. It could be like all of the world. I mean, I think that those things have to happen for change to occur. I wondered what made me, I, it must be, there must be interesting things have happened to focus me on a certain type of conflict or something. But I wrote that because I think it was when, Donald Trump was president. And I think it was when there were a lot of riots occurring in the US. And I think it was when people were very upset about statues being toppled of Southern slave owners and that kind of thing. And I was thinking that, you know, there's a there's there's always kind of like two or more sides to a story. And I was thinking how you know, we have to make space for people to be angry because things have happened in our country that are not good, you know, that 
are, you know, we've, we've treated um, other humans in a not good way in many, many instances. And you're about to face we have another to. one too, from what I saw yeah. coming out of your Supreme Court. Yeah. And we have to, we have to allow, especially what's happened to, you know, the black population in the U.S., like we have to let them have the space to be upset about it. And a lot of times I think that as I, I personally actually felt this way in college, there was a, there was a, a man who wrote a column called 40 Acres and a Jaguar. Do you know the 40 Acres and a Mule reference? No, I so, don't. In American history, when the slaves when the slaves were given brought into the U.S. under you know indentured servants or whatever, they were promised forty acres and a mule at the completion of the servitude. Right, that was what they were. We will give you right, and at the end of slavery. And so this man wrote this column that said, "Okay, by now, because we never received the forty acres and a mule." We are owed 40 acres and a Jaguar. <laughs> and I, at the time that he wrote that, was very, my feeling growing up in the middle of the country, Midwest, very not exposed to international culture at that point in my life. I was like, why is he even saying that? I didn't have anything to do with that. And now I look at myself thinking that and I think, <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, they have experienced a lot of terrible things. And if we're not allowed, if they're not allowed to be angry about that or expect at least us to say, hey, we're not going to put up statues of the people that were, you know, big proponents of it and basically, you know, forced you into servitude. I mean, I think that's a pretty obvious way to make amends. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Unfortunately, not everybody looks at those statues and sees the same disgusting thing that that others do when they look at them and it's a no they don't it's an interesting disconnect to observe and it's obviously i'm a sitting you know in new zealand from you know many many miles away looking at this and see this play out and now i'm seeing what's going on with uh, abortion rights as well and mm. just per, like just personally my personal observe observation with this is america has many dark chapters in its history, but it has also been a shining light in a world that was That's in a true. lot of conflict for a very, very long time. And we've just been through yeah. one of the greatest stretches of peace, largely because of our integrated economies that the world has ever seen. And that is mm -hmm. that is changing. And there are some very important ideals and rights that are at stake in America at the moment. And I think if America wants to continue to be looked at as an example of how to do certain things right, then it needs to take a really hard look at itself and what it's currently been up to in the last few years. And you know, when when yeah. you were you were thinking about this idea of making space, I couldn't help but think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the now deceased former American Supreme Court justice. And I've watched mm -hmm. her speak, and I don't know if you've seen her speak, but if you've ever watched her Senate, I think it's a hearing that they have before they're admitted to the court. If you go back and watch mm -hmm. that video, it's only a short 10 minute clip that I was watching. She makes space when she receives the question. She also makes space almost 
in between every word that she says. And I think if mm. I think about that, I thought it was such a, a beautiful thing to witness. And it's almost like we, I'm getting a bit preachy here, but we all need to literally take that and apply that in our interactions with other people. And I feel like we'll actually yeah. be more able to understand different people's perspectives if we're able to take some space with how we express our own. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's a very sometimes hard thing to do, you know, but yes, I mean, really the greatest tool that we have as humans is empathy. You know, that's our best skill, our most powerful skill, right? I mean, it's something that allows us to empathy and our imagination. Those two things can change everything, right? And I think the better we get at those, using those, the better off we are. But we also have all these other things, emotions that, you know, kind of overtake some things sometimes. But you're right. The making space is also about that. It's about, you know, just giving time for things. And I think in my a career, in my life, I've pushed forward a lot. You know, like I have to move this forward. I have to move myself forward. I have to move this product forward. I have to move this achievement forward. And I sometimes now look at it and think, what would have happened if I would have sat back right there? Or if I, would somebody else have come with something better? Would something have happened that shifted me in another direction? And what would have happened in that direction? You know, not to say that it was a mistake or not a mistake. I mean, pushing is good, too. That's how we innovate, I think. But, yeah, there's definitely times. And I personally am sometimes very, very poor at it. Like, I need, I have to consciously make myself, okay, listen now. You know, let, let's see where this goes, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, such an important tricky. skill. You spoke about mm -hmm. empathy being, you know, one of the things that is is so critical for us as people. And I, you know, I've spoken about David Dylan Thomas a couple of times on this episode. He also, in our conversation, he mentioned a documentary called "Exterminate All the Brutes," and this was a oh yeah yeah right. So this is a look at uh, how genocide actually comes to be, and I think this is so poignant given what's being been happening in Ukraine and some of the narrative that's come out about trying to denazify the country and this very scary human tendency to demean other people to be less than human, which is clearly what happened in America with the slave trade and clearly oh, what yeah. has happened, you know, in Nazi Germany with the Jewish people. And it's clearly still going around. It's happened many times in Africa as well between warring tribes and it is so critical and it's also happening to certain degrees in, in our democracies in particular it's been evident in american democracy with your political divide and we have to be really mm -hmm. careful that we don't dig a ditch so deep that we can no longer see the humanity and the people that are on the other side of it like it's a really important thing for us not to do and i don't have any solutions here but i think i agree with you that we need to find ways to maintain our empathy because terrible terrible things happen when we don't yeah it's interesting where we are now because i think in some ways 
it was easier before so much globalization and technology and, and connectedness to put a group of people in a category of these are the bad people, right? Now, and, and like you, you see it in my, in little ways and in big ways. So like, you know, all of the, on social media, all of the, you know, conflict that was kind of coming evident in, through social media was just exposure of thinking, right? And how people felt about things. And, you know, before, you know, like World War II or whatever incidents you want to, you know, call upon it was easier because you weren't exposed like you couldn't just I couldn't just talk to somebody in Germany or you know what I mean or I couldn't just it's it's been an interesting interesting thing and I it's I sometimes think like I I know most people and in many ways I feel the same that that social media is horrible in many ways but it has so much potential for good I mean, if you think about its potential of connecting people from different backgrounds to each other to discuss things or expose each other to how they feel, how they think, what they do on a daily basis, when has that ever been possible? Never, ever. And it could be something that we take and are like, oh, right, we're going to make something amazing. You know, we're going to use this to to um change the world but i i guess i don't know we are using it to change the world but we, yeah we just don't like it some has, of the changes yeah yeah we don't agree with people so there's something called the human library have you ever heard of that no. there's a guy in i have to send it to you i think he might be in copenhagen mm -hmm. he's created something called the human library and the tagline of the human library is unjudge someone mm -hmm. and the idea is that you go to a place, let's say a cafe or whatever, and there are people who are members of the human library and you go there and you talk to them. They tell you about themselves. You tell them about yourself. And a lot of times they're from some completely different background as you. And he's about to put it online. So it's like interviews with people from different backgrounds. And the whole purpose is to learn about somebody else and listen to them and generate empathy for that person. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. It's a library of humans. I think in some more, in some like distant future when, you know, if, if we're not around anymore, aliens will watch it and be like, oh, this is what humans are like. They had, <laughs> they had some potential. They just uh, squandered it all away. <laughs> yeah, there was a library though. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you want a good design yeah. challenge, people figure out how to how to scale that scale empathy. I think that would be a, a worthwhile endeavor. You know, oh, Becky, yeah. you've said, and I'll quote you again: "A lot of people in my field, UX, spend a lot of time arguing over definitions of what things are, and it's very frustrating sometimes." So, what are we arguing about that frustrates you? And where instead shall we be? Should we be focusing our energy? Well, I mean, I I think I get maybe it's not frustrated, but a little bit kind of like I'm just going to go over here and not pay attention <laughs> when when designers spend a lot of time debating things like what kind of design, like you were talking about, like is it interaction design? Is it UX design? Is it product design? Is it I don't know. Right. Like I personally, I personally do not know 
I don't even know what I am, right? <laughs> like if you ask me what type of designer are you, I'd be like, I don't know, right? I don't know because I don't know. I don't – and also it might be because of me being outside kind of on the fringe of the design, of the UX design world, like or, or I don't know, just – I'm, I kind of, maybe I don't fit into any of those things either, but it bothers me sometimes how much time we spend on that because I feel like, I feel like design is a way of thought, you know, it's a, how we look at things. It's not necessarily a series, like, again, back to the boxes, you know, of which box do you fit in, right? I know that sometimes those things are necessary because in organizations you have to define people's roles, right? In order to accomplish goals. And in order to do that, you have to say you're, you are a whatever. I mean, in some big companies, they're like UX designer two or whatever, you know, (laughs) and that, that is a specific type of role and you do these following things. But one of the things I also love about innovation teams, and I love that term of, you know, the the fit not fitting in right that you have flexibility to think in different ways right like you don't have to you can be the da vinci you can be the person who thinks i'm gonna just go try to build that or you can be the person's like let's sketch it all out right so i i don't know i don't know who i am to say of how people should be spending their time (laughs) Um, i'm probably you know just as guilty at of getting up worried or consumed by things myself. But I, I think that when it comes down to it, the, the fun bit is the actual creating and the, the designing of things. So if we can maybe, maybe others will have more pleasure in their life or happiness if they can think about that over what category you fit in. What a great note to end on, Becky. Thank you for such an <laughs> expansive conversation. We've certainly, we've we've traveled some roads together. I've really, really enjoyed it. I really appreciate you sharing your stories and insights with me today. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you, Brendan. I really appreciated it. Oh, you're very welcome, Becky. Becky, if people want to find out <laughs> more about you and about the the work on the frontier that you've been doing, what's the best way for them to do that? That's a really good question. I don't really seek out for people to contact me so much anymore, but I'm happy to talk to people. I have a website that's just speckyprevy.com, but there's just a few. I don't actually send people there for anything. So I guess I'm on all of the platforms, <laughs> social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, all those things. But I'll make sure that I, I link, I'll link to your LinkedIn and, uh, and to your website um, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, great. Sounds good. Thanks, Becky. And, and hi to Dave. There must be a guy named Dave around there somewhere because you said Dave at Oh, D- Dave, <laughs> Dave's our editor. He does a wonderful job. Yes, should give Dave more props on the podcast. Dave, you don't need to take, yeah. don't take this bit out. You can leave this bit in. <laughs> hi, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. We love you, Dave. All right. <laughs> to, to everyone that has tuned in, it's also been great having you listen and uh, potentially watch this conversation as well. As I mentioned, uh, where, where you can find Becky will be in the show notes, including detailed uh, chapters on YouTube um, to all the different areas that we've covered. 
and the great stuff we've spoken about. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review as well. Uh, reviews are currently few and far between, so more reviews would be appreciated, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, and tell someone else about the show as well. So if you feel like there's someone that you know that would enjoy these um, conversations at depth with people into design and uh, into their lives, then share it with them too. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in Brendan Jarvis into search. I'm sure you'll find me. Or you can find a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes. Or you can go to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!